kink is a vehicle for fulfillment, but it is not the only vehicle for fulfillment. Mm -hmm. But driving that vehicle and any vehicle for fulfillment is communication. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Amplify. We are here to help you own your truth, use your voice, and stand out as the most unapologetically aligned, abundant, and authentic version of you so that you can make a big impact in the world doing what sets your soul on fire. Because you and I, we are meant to stand the F out. I'm your host, Lauren Salon, and I'm a public relations and marketing expert, entrepreneur, speaker, former on-air entertainment host and past professional fitness competitor and health coach. And several times per week, I'll be bringing you epic guest conversations and solo episodes along with the tools, tricks, and tips that you need in order to step into your power, own your purpose, and stand out in the world as the most vibrant version of you. Because I believe that the more you you are in the world, the more successful and fulfilled you will be. So what do you say? Are you ready? Let's get amplified because blending in is bullshit. Today I chat in the home studio with my friend, John Romanello. John is an author, angel investor, media personality, and consultant who helps entrepreneurs improve communication skills and increase revenue through writing and branding. Well-known across multiple industries, he has written hundreds of articles covering topics from business and marketing to fitness and self-development and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Engineering the Alpha. In 2015, John founded Wellspring Media, a consulting company focused on helping increase income and influence through effective branding and storytelling. Romanello currently serves as an advisor to nearly a dozen companies, freelances as a ghostwriter and copy doctor, and offers services as a writing mentor and consultant to helping content creators become better writers. Additionally, John is well-known in the polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, BDSM, and kink community, and has a wealth of knowledge on those subjects. Today, John and I chat about everything from creativity to mental health to kink and BDSM, this is a great conversation and spoiler alert, it gets pretty juicy. Enjoy the episode. Super, super excited to have our very special guest here in studio to chat for those of you who can see us on a video. Um, this is probably going to be a fuller experience for you, but Got my friend John here. Thank you for coming over. Thank you for having me. And yes. Into your lovely studio. This is, oh, it's very pretty. For Thank those you who cannot much. see it, there's it's very it is exactly what you would expect from Lauren's studio. Oh, okay. It's very on brand. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I like that. So, as everybody knows, we get started with <coughs> some rapid fire questions. Oh. So, what is something that you're grateful for right now? I, I what that. I do, I do a gratitude practice every day before Same. every meal. So it's hard to find things for which I'm not grateful, but I suppose as I gear up for my move to Austin with Amanda, uh, the thing for which I'm most grateful is community. I'm very mm. excited to be moving to a place that has a lot of built-in relationships and, 
it feels really exciting to, to have so many cool people in proximity, which is something I have not had in a very long time. Yeah. Oh, I'm like a little envious <clears throat> of that. Cause yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be beautiful. Um, what is a guilty pleasure of yours, whether or not there's actual guilt associated with okay. it? So yes, I have no guilt about anything. <laughs> I think that no pleasure should be guilt, right? but I, there are things that, I think to people on the outside would seem incongruous yes. with my personality. Okay. For example, Ooh. I love Cher. I think Cher is one of the greatest <laughs> yes. living people. And uh, once in Vegas, I, I, I was in Vegas playing poker with my friends and we were walking from one hotel to another, to another and we walked by this big billboard that announced that Cher was playing. And I said, we, we got to go see Cher. Screaming. And this, I was like 26 years old at the height of like heteronormative masculinity. And my friends were very, very surprised. They were like, no, we don't got to go see Cher. So that night, while my friends played poker, I went and saw Cher by myself. And it was like 50% middle-aged women, 50% gay guys and me. And I somehow this. I lost my shirt and came back covered in body glitter. I did get a new shirt and I sat down at the poker table and I won like 800 bucks while my friends were all losing. And I was like, that's because you didn't see share. Yeah. Share so is a guilty pleasure. Oh my gosh. I love that. What <laughs> would your, I mean, like, what's your favorite share song? And then you probably don't have just one, but. Oh, uh, I really like Just Like Jesse James. There's okay. just great storytelling in that. And then um, I don't, I don't love her newer stuff as much as her like 80s level stuff, but um but like her style her, too, incredible. like, yeah, holy yeah. cow. My mom looked kind of like Cher when she was, when she was young. The tall, dark hair vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Cher yeah. like is it. one of my guilty pleasures. Another would be, I like, I think everybody does. I love watching teen dramas. There's something about <laughs> the, CW. the CW just crushes it for me. Yes. Like Riverdale is the most <laughs> absurd show on television. These are high school kids solving yeah. murders yeah. and it's, it's the Archie comic. Pretty but Little Liars. But, Yes, I got, that was the whole thing. So <laughs> yeah. yes, shows like that, which have an utterly ridiculous premise yes. and somehow involve teenagers doing things that most people will never do, like solving murders and and hiding their identities see, and faking their deaths. I think that's Yeah, see, that's a, that's a more surprising one for you because I feel like you're so discriminatory to the, the content you consume and wanting yes. it to be such like a high caliber. Yes. I, I love Prestige again, TV. We, I love Billions. We slum it love, down then. There's something about it that just feels so familiar. I think that mm. it's this, it's it's a an aspect of culture that people as you age tend to want to overlook this, what it is to be a teenager. And obviously this is not an accurate representation, but there is something nice about getting to visit characters of a younger age and sort of embody that. Mm -hmm. And it also helps you separate from that part of your life and yeah I really I I don't think that I could ever get into really trashy tv like reality tv but as long as the storytelling is compelling and the acting is good no matter how ridiculous the premise or the setting I can I can enjoy it yeah hey I hear you with that and fun fact I interviewed the cast of Riverdale at comic-con a few years ago oh that's <laughs> yeah. incredible that is very yeah. cool um so what is a random fact that most people do not know about you the first thing that popped into oh, my gosh, head is I, I wet the bed until I was 10. It was a very, <laughs> I don't know why that's the random, most people would never know that. Why would you know that? Yeah. Why would anybody need to know that? Um, but wow. that, yeah, okay. it's, I, I, did, I did that. I was probably trauma related, but yeah, yeah. I definitely wet the bed until I was 10. And then, and here's why this gets mildly interesting. At the time, uh, this was obviously an issue. I, my parents put me on 
uh, or they took me to the pediatrician who prescribed what was then an experimental drug. It was called DDAVP, this nasal inhalant. Okay. And this fixed the bedwetting in like two and a half weeks. Wow. However, I've not slept through the night since then. I have such a sensitive bladder when I sleep that I wake up to pee probably three times a day. <gasps> but I slip in and out of REM but sleep for easily. Anymore. I do not. That is <laughs> on the plus side. I do not pee the bed. But as soon as I, I my body recognizes that I need to pee, the I alarm get up, goes off. Yeah. Alarm goes off. I go to the restroom and then, but I fall right back to sleep immediately. Okay. So my body has adapted and I in and out of REM. Interesting. It's a strange thing. Yeah, I I have a pee alarm as internal pee alarm as well. I pretty much wake up guaranteed after like six hours of sleep to go pee. And then I'll go right back to bed. But I used to be like, when I wanted to get up earlier, more consistently, I'm like, we'll just use the pee alarm. It wakes you up at 5 a.m. every day anyway. Just stay awake. (laughs) Um, All right. If you weren't doing what you do now, which we will get into, and obviously as entrepreneurs, we get to design exactly what our work and life looks like, which is so beautiful. Um, what kind of like job or career would you have? Like something random that you're like, Ooh, this always looks like it'd be super fucking cool. And I'd be super good at it. Sharon impersonator. I don't, there's a great line in, uh, game of Thrones where one of the characters, Jamie Lannister says, it's a good thing. I am what I am. I would have been shite at anything else. And I feel as though while I have a pretty eclectic skill set, there's no other thing I could do that would allow me to bring so many disparate things to bear in a particular way. The only other thing I could think of doing, my dream job, my true dream job, mm. would be to be in a writer's room on a TV drama. Mm. That's the only other Ooh, thing. Like what kind of what kind of show? Like something like Game of Thrones? Probably something more grounded in reality. Okay. Billions, for example, yeah, is one of my favorite so good, shows. So or things of that nature. Really, real character-driven stuff that you, you don't require all the fantasy to, yeah. to sort of support it, but something mm-hmm. like that. All right. I like that. Any weird talents or special skills? I can only imagine. I, I don't <laughs> know where you expect this to go. <clears throat> um, what, uh, goodness. I don't know how weird they are. I... <laughs> I'm not particularly talented. I, many years ago, in the halcyon days of my misspent youth, I was in emo bands. And so I am a very, very like shitty- Like in, wait, into or in? I was in, I played music. And what did you play? I played the bass very poorly. Okay. I was a really shitty bass player in a fairly decent set of bands. And I was also a lyricist, Okay. which is not surprising to anyone. Yes. But I, so yeah, I've got some, not musical talent, but I've got musical effort. Right. And, and there's that. Beyond that, I, I do voices. I'm I am particularly skilled at accents and voices and things mm. like that. So that's that's an area that I played a lot when I was a kid. Okay. Into it. So speaking of being mm. a kid, what oh, did you yeah. want to be when you're little? A teacher. Yeah. I want that was exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. I wanted to teach high school English and history. And when I was 18, my mother and my guidance counselor sat me down. And they told me I was not allowed to do that, that I would never make any money, that I had to go into a career that would allow for financial success. And so I was pushed towards medicine. You're like, so I became a writer. <laughs> I, well, I was, I, when I answered school, yeah. I was pre-med. Okay. And then I changed majors like four or five times and wound up with a degree in psychobiology and English with a concentration on creative writing and a history minor with a concentration wow. on religion. So Very. I went, basically I came out, I was awesome at Jeopardy, but wildly unqualified to hold a job yeah. of any kind. 
And somehow over the past 20 years, I have had various pockets of a career and change enough times, but really what I do now, and I know we'll get into this, is teach. Mm -hmm. To this day, my favorite thing is to stand up in front of a room full of people and teach writing or storytelling or any of the things that had such a tremendous impact on my life. Only the difference is rather than being an overworked, underpaid teacher making at best 150K a year, mm -hmm. hoping that every year I would get one kid like me for whom it made a difference, now I get to teach entrepreneurs and, and teach copywriting and teach storytelling mm -hmm. and they pay me thousands of dollars for it. Right. And so I don't want to say that my mom and my guidance counselor were right. <laughs> it was more that, hey mom, do you hear that it was more that things circled back to where I eventually and wanted to be. I feel like that happens. Well, for so many of us, it happens so much. Like when I was little, I wanted to be an actress, like famous pop star, all that kind of stuff. Like, is anyone surprised? Probably not. Um, and so like, even just doing this right now, like having a podcast that allows me to have that like creative performing mm -hmm. outlet. Yeah. And, and even just all the other things of like, oh, funny how you just come full circle or I would hope like those little things that you wanted to be when you were little or the things that brought you joy when you were growing up, um, being able to find that or tap into that somehow as an adult is really cool to see that happen. It so, really is beautiful. That's a, yeah. a nice coming of age kind of rapid thing that I think um, we get to experience in mm -hmm. terms of our expression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When's the last time that you cried? Probably yesterday. Yes. I cry, I cry all the time. Um, hold on. When, yes, I did cry yesterday. I did too, actually. I did cry yesterday. I received a beautiful text message from my friend Robbie who was informing me that his wife is pregnant and that he's going to be a dad. Mm. But the way that he wrote the text message, he, he started out just uh, that you were one of the first people I wanted to tell. And then here's the impact you've had on my life. So this was like, you know, like 150 words of just adulation from yeah. someone who I care very much about and, and uh, who's also had a big impact on my life. And so it was just real, real bro love. And as he's telling me, he's going to be a father and that he is excited to have me be an influence on his son's life, the way I've been an influence on his. And that is, that's really, really I like that. So I did cry. Yeah. What about what is one of your favorite meals? Steak. Steak. Yeah, I'm, yes. yeah, I, I'm a big yes. fan. Yeah, a a well-cooked ribeye. How do you like your steak cooked? Rare. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, rare. Yes. That's the, yes. That's the correct way to eat yes. steak. <laughs> the correct way. Yeah. And lastly for rapid fire, which ended up not being that rapid, which is totally okay. Mm. Favorite travel destination or, mm. and or next travel destination i mean Austin where, wherever count, they let me travel right? is where i will go my my favorite place that i've ever been was prague there was Ooh. something i i speak to a lot of people about this and not as many people agree as i thought would it turns out travel like life it depends on the season mm. and i happened to hit prague when there was a week of beautiful weather and it was the right season of my life with the right person and I stayed in this, this hotel that had been a monastery and I discovered all these amazing foods. And many people go to Prague and have the opposite experience. For me, I think I just got really lucky. Mm. But I, the next place I would like to go, um, once I'm allowed to leave the country, would be to the UK. Okay. I have a lot of friends in London. I was supposed to do some workshops there and, and they all got COVID canceled. 
and uh, I have a young lady there who I have been talking to for two years, and we have not two gotten to meet. Two years yeah, and so, not met. Yeah, wow, we, uh, which we'll get into. We'll get into that. That's a little dynamics. foreshadowing. UK. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah, I Prague is definitely on my list. Heard from so many people who've been there. That's just such a beautiful, beautiful country, beautiful place. Yes. Um, yeah, city, Prague, obviously. Um, okay, so now I'd love for you to just like tell everyone your story. How'd you get to? Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, like so it doesn't long. have to be the like what, hundred do, year yeah, version how do we, from like the beginning of the bedwetting to now. <laughs> I was born during a snowstorm <laughs> yeah. in April. And with with uh, a writer, speaker, like, you know. So the abridged version in the yes. ways that I think are are beneficial to your audience. I am a born and bred New Yorker. I come mm -hmm. from a mixed race family. My mother is, my mother's side is Italian German. My dad's dad was Italian and half Polish Jew. And my dad's mom was half black and then Irish and Native American. It was very exciting. Very eclectic I've got a family. lot of those in there as well. And so I grew up in a very liberal mixed race house uh, or mixed race family. Two of my uncles are gay and I grew up around strong women and so I, I was always an intersectional feminist. I don't, I didn't have a lot of the pre-installed misogyny. I sure some of it, but, um, what would you, one, how would you define intersectional feminist for people? It never made sense to me that there were beliefs really firmly held beliefs in other people that women couldn't do mm. the same things that men could, mm. or that people of other races were somehow less intelligent or less deserving of success because my family demonstrated very clearly that that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And I am very, I feel very fortunate to have grown up where I did. And, and even under the circumstances I did, which were not the best because it really showed me um, a part of how most of us need to struggle in some way. And for me, those struggles, if you look at me, were, were not based on sex or gender or race or anything but for people in my family they often were and it mm -hmm. gave me a really interesting uh, look at that from you know I, I have all of the white privilege but i my but i have proximity to people who do not because mm -hmm. they are blood relatives mm -hmm. i grew up in an abusive household my father was um violent toward my mother and myself and so at nine years old we left by which i mean she packed my sister and i in a car and we mm -hmm. left in the middle of the night and wow. we lived in, in pretty intense poverty for about four years. Um, my mother had PTSD. I remember most of what I remember of that time was her sleeping on a couch. Mm. We moved into a really shitty two bedroom apartment. I had a room, my sister had a room. We were of an age where my mom didn't think it was appropriate to share. And so she spent three years sleeping on a couch until we could oh, afford mama. a bigger place. Yeah, my mom was pretty incredible. Uh, food stamps, government aid, welfare, I remember something that I, I like look back on with great shame is being maybe 12 years old and asking my mother to shop in a supermarket like two towns away so that no one that we knew mm -hmm. would see her paying with food stamps, which at that time, you know, just I had such yeah, intense shame. Yeah. It's intense but shame about the poverty and, and the abuse. And I found great solace in books. When I was eight years old, I told my mother I wanted to write a book. And when she asked why, I said, because books make me happy and I'd like to make other people happy too. I love that. 
that's that, precious. That's the reaction that most people have. Or, oh, that's adorable. But, but when you put that in context of what was happening in my household, yeah, that, books make me happy is the language an eight-year-old uses to say, this nothing is a place, else does. Like, or this else. is a place where yeah, I feel yeah, safe. Yeah. Everything that's going on, all the violence is scarier than whatever is happening in the Lord of the Rings or Narnia mm -hmm. or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and whatever else I was reading. And that was a place that had great protection for me and that I could escape to. It didn't, I didn't have to, I could go to those places and I didn't need to explain to anyone there what was happening in my house or that I couldn't afford the right shoes or anything. And I became a pretty solitary kid for a while. And then um, I found writing and I found people who liked it. And I was a nerd in high school. I played Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering and was into punk rock and Somehow I still had a couple of good people around me. And then when I was like 18, developed a, a really, really great community. Went to college, changed majors a bunch of times, graduated with the degree I mentioned earlier, and then started a personal training company. I had gone through a body transformation in college. It changed my life. I wanted to do that for other people too, but it was also a way to procrastinate on grad school in real life. And then after about six years, um, I was like, I got to figure something real out. And not that it wasn't real. It was a very successful personal training company. I was 25 years old, making like you know, 180 a year, which was better than anyone I knew yeah. using their degrees. And then I got into online marketing. A friend of mine reached out and said, you know, he sent me some blogs and he's like, you could do this. And so I went to a marketing conference with him. The first marketing conference I ever went to was in Wyckoff, New Jersey, famous for nothing other than the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> and it was called Fast Track to Fitness Millions. And it was, I don't think that anything I learned there was applicable today except copywriting. And I made friends. I, I met some people and they instilled in me a level of belief and all the same thing people get from community and masterminds I was able to get. Mm -hmm. Six months later, I lost my, I launched my first e-product, which crushed it. We did like half a million in six days. And then I just ran an online fitness business for several years. Some point in there, there was in 2013, I um, released a book called Engineering the Alpha that debuted at number four in the New York Times bestseller list. It was acquired for seven figures at auction by HarperCollins. Then like the next several years were- No big deal. Like we're, you're just like, yeah, you know. <laughs> It's, it's interesting because it feels like those things happen to another person. Mm. 2013, I also got married. And 2014, I started having my first affair. And um, I was wildly unhappy. I was not because of the marriage, although it, it was it was contributive. I simply rushed into a lot of things and didn't know myself and then hated myself. Such mm. shame. And by the time I was like 33, I was, I had two suicide attempts in, in the marriage. Um, my first suicide attempt was when I was 17. I skipped over the depression. I struggled with my entire life. And then um, the, the things that are important that I think we'll talk about are when I was 33 or 34, 33. Um, I tried Which is not that long. I mean, five years. Yeah. Ago, um, I tried MDMA for the first time, which changed my life. I had been anti-drug my whole life, grew up, and my parents had drug problems, and my, you know, my dad mm -hmm. was an abusive guy, so I was just like, I'm not going to do that. And then on my second MDMA journey, I unearthed all of this childhood sexual trauma, not at my father's hands, but at the hands of my great uncle. Wow. And 
So this was a man who was not like a fixed presence in my young life. They were just like crimes of opportunity. I was left in his care a few Mm -hmm. times and, and he, um, I don't, I don't know how graphic you want to be, but there's the the word to use is rape. Um, and you know, all the, all of the different versions of that. Um, what was interesting is years later, when I was processing a lot of this, I realized he was a fixed presence in my father's life when he was a kid, Mm. which to me, all of the evidence added up that my father had been sexually abused his entire life, which is how he had such rage and why he was so abusive to my mother and I, and that's the cycle of abuse Mm -hmm. and became, I became very dedicated to breaking that. And I looked at myself and the fact that I was dishonest in my marriage and had been cheating on this, my wife, who who was not the right match for me, but is an amazing person. Mm -hmm. And I realized that although it was not manifesting in violence for me, the cycle of abuse was manifesting in dishonesty. When you start cheating, you have to start lying to hide it. Otherwise it's just not cheating. And then that, that is a type of manipulation. And it, it drifts, you know, the slippery slope towards like gaslighting and much of the behavior that I enacted to keep these things hidden was, was really terrible. And yeah. I, uh, I've, I've great remorse about it. No longer shame or guilt, but great remorse. So the period from 2014 to 2016, I was like mostly just figuring out how to not fuck up my life. Sometimes mm-hmm. I was cheating sometimes, and I it took a lot away from my business. Eventually I moved back to New York and um, my wife and I separated and you know, officially. And, um, and then I started just doing a lot of self-work and starting to heal. I got involved in a few relationships and really came to grips with the term that with, with the idea that I'm not just somebody who cheats I'm not, it's that I am ultimately a polyamorous person. That is my sexual orientation or that's my relational orientation and got really involved in that community. And that has been life-changing in so many mm-hmm. ways. And these days, in terms of my professional endeavors, I have a company called Wellspring Media. I still own my fitness company, Roman Fitness Systems. I don't run it. I have two guys who do that. It does well enough. Wellspring Media is multifaceted. We have a copywriting arm where we are guns for hire. You can hop, mm-hmm. hire us for copywriting work. I am still a coach. I do a lot of writing mentorship. So I help people write books or figure out what their books are. And then in addition to that, um, I help people with stuff like this. I, I hold space and I and I coach either men or women or, or often couples figuring out their relational dynamics and particularly with regard to polyamory and kink, which I know we will get into. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing all that and like raw and honest and everything um so i'm like have now a million more questions um it's, okay. it's all on the table nothing yes, yes. So, we can ask. so so really or maybe not really quickly but your experience with depression and everything like that um was it ever really anxiety for you or mostly depression? mostly depression yeah okay. i didn't I, I i occasionally experience anxiety but i didn't have the same or i don't have the same feeling of generalized anxiety that I know a lot of people do Mm -hmm. every now and again, I experience acute anxiety and, um, I mostly just deal with it by deciding I'm going to take the day off life and just watch TV. Yeah. Whereas depression is generalized and the depressive periods are typically long. Yeah. So several months of Mm. not being able to function well, not wanting to get out of bed. And, uh, so that is, that's much more inhibitive. What, what helps you with that? 
Well, I'm a big proponent of better living through chemistry. I, I think that for all the time I spent trying not to take medicine to work on this disease I had, uh, I, could have, I could have saved a lot of time and effort. What works for me is SNRIs, so, um, or dopaminergic drugs like Welbutrin. SSRIs really, they make me very dull and it's hard mm. to focus and, and it just like, it just creates a different problem. Beyond that, um, you know, I was in therapy for many years. I'm, I'm not currently with a therapist, but still do a lot of self-work. Psychedelics have been tremendously helpful in Same. ways that I cannot describe yep. because they have allowed me to get to the roots of some of this trauma and work through it or accept it. And I have not experienced a depressive episode in two years, over two years now. Wow. Yeah. I've had like occasional periods where like, I'm just, it looks like it's going to be a downturn, yeah. but it hasn't. Whereas it was predictable for a while with like every year, it would just be like, well, three months out of the year, I just don't get to work. Wow. Um, now that, so pretty much through like from 2013 to 2018, it was three months out of the year, at least. And that was like when you were, I was in you know, marriage and married cheating, and like, and it was, was just like a all big of that. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of thing. the, you know, the other, the infidelity was, uh, you know, an attempt to just create, um, stimulus mm -hmm. to focus on something else. Mm -hmm. But once yeah. I unearthed the sexual trauma, that really, that really made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I haven't dealt with depression on a big scale, but did for most of the year in 2019. And it was very much, I mean, there's a lot of parallels and stuff. And I know you and I have talked about some of this mm -hmm. offline, but I, cheated in my marriage. And, and so, yeah, what you're saying with like the lying and the shame with that. And then once I talked about that, like my anxiety around it, right. Keeping it contained, my anxiety flipped into depression. Yeah. And so then we're like, oh, okay, now I get to deal with the consequences. What, like why that all happened. Cause it's not, yes. Like you can be unhappy in your relationship and very rarely it's like, that's the, the root of it. Right. When we do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it opens, you know, depression and anxiety, I think is our feedback from our body telling us something, something in there is <laughs> out of whack needs, with. needs to get put back yeah. in place or dealt with or moved through. Um, yeah, so definitely resonate with a lot of, a lot of what you said, and of course have a very different experience with it too. Yeah. Um, when it comes to writing, sure. because you, even just in like, even just in how you speak on stories or how you write your captions and stuff like that. And just from people listening right now, you are incredibly eloquent. I don't think I heard an, um, or anything like that at all. So what, tips would you have for people who want to become better writers or speakers? Well, better speaking. Yeah. I mean, those is, are very different things. It is the first part of any type of process for improving improvement is auditing and assessing with speaking. The way that you do it is speak and then watch yourself back and see what you're doing incorrectly. And then you pick out one specific habit to eliminate For most people, it's saying, um, and then you make the conscious effort not to do that. The trick for speaking is understanding you don't need to go so fast mm -hmm. and you don't need to fill the silence. Yes. We use verbal crutches because 
hesitating between words as I just did feels unnatural. Mm -hmm. I think typically it is better to have hesitation regardless of whether or not it's in place of a verbal crutch, but it just allows people time to absorb all of that information. Many times we are very excited. In in everyday conversation, there's a back and forth Mm -hmm. and we are not always taking the time to think. We wind up putting sentences together as they're coming out of our mouth and they're, they're being constructed like as we're going. And just giving yourself a little bit more time, slowing yourself down by about 10% allows you to just be a few words ahead of what your brain is assembling. Yes. And it allows you to be a bit more direct and a bit more selective in your word choice. And that creates a more expressive and beautiful sentence for the listener, but it also makes people feel more listened to. Mm -hmm. And you never feel like you have to interrupt yourself or go through a thought. And of course, in regular conversation, that still happens sometimes, but I have practices in terms of an interview like this, reminding myself, slow down, don't go so fast. Yeah, I love that. So in college, in my rhetoric class, we, if you said, um, when you were speaking in front of the class, the entire class, um, if you said like our professor, Dr. Spencer, he would say, wait, was it like that? Or was it actually that? Like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So I, I, oh gosh, I say like way too much <laughs> still or now again. Uh, but, but yeah, and even, even that too, that a pause can be really powerful mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with taking a moment to take a breath and think about what you're going to say. Yeah, exactly. Um, So what about now if you are, because writing is a very creative thing. And sometimes I know with creatives, you're like, oh, well, if I don't feel inspired, I'm not going to do the thing. Like when the inspiration hits me and then we're going to go do it. So what do you have to say to people who feel that way? Or or even just if you're lacking inspiration or Mm. how to be more consistent with your creative craft? I'll tell you a story. It's a story yes, of two please. brothers. Oh. Okay, and this is a this is a great story. There's a story of two brothers who grew up together in a small village. One brother was he lived in his internal world and he liked books and thought and scholarship. And the other brother was more of the physical world. He liked reading or he preferred running to reading. He took pleasure in swimming. He liked the feel of good tilled earth. When they came of age, the brothers went their separate ways to devote themselves to their studies. They walked to the edge of the village where there's a crossroads. One brother went to the left, the other went to the right. Five years later, they returned. The first brother had dedicated himself to the mystical arts and he became a very powerful sorcerer. The other brother, the one who was physical, became a very well-known stonemason. And so they get together for the first time in five years. And the stonemason says to the sorcerer, will you conjure something for me, brother? The sorcerer begins an arcane chant. He throws his arms in the air and he's chanting and casting the spell. And out of nowhere, a shimmering bird comes into appearance, floating limbly, and then stops in front of the stonemason and then goes off. The stonemason says to his brother, that was amazing. How did you do that? And the sorcerer says, It takes a lot of my energy and not my spells don't work every time, but when they do, they're beautiful. Mm. And then he says to the stonemason, 
will you make me something? The stonemason says, of course. So he lays out his tools on the ground. He brings rocks from the river and breaks them down into mortar. And he begins stacking things on top of one another. And soon he has a beautifully carved, carved stone basin. And he looks at his brother and he says, a bowl for your shimmering bird. And the sorcerer looks at him and he said, this is, he's looking at the intricate stonework. And he says, this is, this is beyond belief. Can you do this whenever you want? And the stonemason says, he shrugs. He says, given the time and the tools and the materials, yeah, I can. It's not magic. And the sorcerer looks at him and says, yes, it is. When you're a creative, some days you get to be a sorcerer. You get to just imagine things into existence and they flow out of you like water. But most of the time, you have to be a stonemason. You just put word after word after word. Now, the key in either case is to understand when to switch. If you are feeling particularly sorcerous, if you are feeling inspired, use that in the most productive and efficient way possible. It isn't always the best case that you should write one post. It might be the best use of your time to write outlines or jot down all of your ideas, whatever is coming out of you, it's going to be more valuable if you have a wider spread. Mm -hmm. Because that gives you the material. When you have to be a stonemason and you have to write stuff, you have to create something. It's, if you're not feeling inspired, it's challenging to do that. And no stonemason, however talented or skilled he might be, can build a wall without bricks or mortar or hammer or chisel. And so when you are inspired, when you are feeling that, you have to think of your future self, that version of yourself who is uninspired but still needs to build a wall. And the goal is to create as much material, as many outlines, as many things as possible so that when you're not inspired, you have something to work on. Mm. Second to that, the key to Great writing, and this is something almost no one in social media does, and I really hope if you're listening you do this, is editing. <laughs> People are so obsessed with the idea of publish or perish, I have to put out content every day. The reason my writing looks so great is, okay, I'm talented, I've been studying this, I, I, I've been doing this my entire life, certainly, but you don't see anything that I haven't edited. Everything gets an edit. Every great book you've ever read has had several people comb through it for mistakes. Mm -hmm. The big mistake I see content creators and coaches and entrepreneurs make is they just put it out there. It's rapid fire. Now you have to decide. And, and, I, and I don't think you actually have to decide. Really, you get to do both. Create in the best way, in the fastest way that you can, but just wait a little while to publish it. It is true that it's always going to be faster and easier to make a shitty first draft better than it is to write a better first draft. So don't get so caught up trying to make the writing good that you can't write. Mm -hmm. Write something shitty, just don't publish it right away. Yeah. The other piece is to find the practices that inspire you. For me, it's listening to the same song over and over again. It doesn't matter the song, mm -hmm. but I, it's called extreme re-listening. And I just put one song on and I play over and over. So it's not white noise like a fan or a dryer, 
but neither is it changing all the time. It's mm -hmm. kind of gray. Um, I know what kind of lighting I work best in. I work better at coffee shops than at home. There's something about the- I, A lot of the time I used to, yeah, same. So you just have to, what gets measured gets managed. So if you have a particularly good writing day and you produce a lot of words, ask yourself, what was it about today? Was it really that you felt inspired? There was some magical force, some muse whispering in your ear, or was it a series of relatively repeatable aspects of your environment, of your mm -hmm. diet, of your sleep that you can use to then create that situation more often? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love it. All right, we're gonna switch gears to some of the saucier topics, of course. <laughs> sure. Um, so you already mentioned that you identify relationally as mm -hmm. polyamorous. That is correct. So tell everyone what the heck that even means. Polyamory is a, it's more of an umbrella term that is more and more often getting used to describe mm -hmm. any kind of non-monogamous relationship. In this particular world, we say consensual non-monogamy <clears throat> or ethical non-monogamy, and that differentiates it from infidelity or cheating, mm -hmm. where you are not being honest. You're not, it's not consensual. For me, polyamory is an acknowledgement that it's, it's not only that I am not suited to or cannot find fulfillment in sexual monogamy. It is also an acknowledgement that I, um, I can connect and enjoy connecting romantically with multiple people. So in my case, I have my life partner, Amanda, with whom I live and we are moving to Austin together. And throughout our relationship, I've had shorter relationships with other people whom I've dated uh, for you know, anywhere from a couple of weeks to, uh, to several months. Those relationships usually end in the natural way any other relation, mm -hmm. six-month relationship does. There's, you know, people want different things. Maybe they want something I'm not available for. There is um, an implied hierarchy. Like Amanda is, she's my, my primary partner, my anchor partner, to use polyamorous parlance. But uh, you can't put love in a box. It is very mm -hmm. conceivable that mm -hmm. either she or I will connect with someone and, and uh, fall very deeply in love to mm -hmm. the extent that like more room needs to be made. And there's an openness to that. Whereas in open relationships that where it's just sexual non-monogamy, the idea is <clears throat> you do these other things and it's kind of play and it, it, it isn't uh, it, 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 it doesn't always get to exist with the same level of priority mm. that the primary relationship yeah. does. We haven't run into that yet simply because we haven't run into that yet. But the way that our relationship is set up, there is a, um, there's an understanding and that there is this real commitment to one another that should Amanda find another person with whom she really connects and want to explore that in a, in a more deep romantic way that's available and we'll, you know number one thing is understanding when people hear about polyamory just try to place it in the context of a of a busy life you know we have businesses <laughs> to run and we have our own relationship we have our dogs we have our friends there isn't that much availability to have another whole 
like primary. Yeah, it's not like there's like just like yeah, it's not hours and hours every weekend and oh, like yeah. all this oh, stuff. Yeah. No, like yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, people people assume that polyamory or open relationships are very sexually driven. They think you just fuck and fuck and fuck. No, what actually happens is you talk and talk and talk. So much talking, and talk right? and talk <laughs> and talk and sometimes you fuck and then you talk about that. Yeah. And then you talk some more. And then uh, if you're good at it and you have great communication, it 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 is uh, easier to have more sex <laughs> as opposed to if you're not good at it and every time you and sleep you with someone, a there's, a, there's a breakdown. And also, it also changes. When I was living in New York and Amanda was in LA, it was logistically less challenging to yeah. see other people. I was like, well, I'm not gonna see her for two weeks. I'm gonna fill my time. And I would meet and date. We have not had the experience where we live together. And for example, I'm gonna go on a date mm. and then I have to come back that night You're or like getting not. ready and right. excited. Like that's a, that's a whole thing that we haven't done yet yeah. because we lived separately until COVID and then COVID is very inhibitive to meeting multiple people. <laughs> And yeah, so that's been, it's been an interesting sort of change. And as yeah. we move to Austin, we'll both be in a new city and, and we'll, we'll look at that. Okay. So how did you come to the realization that you were inclined to polyamory or like why just wired that way, as opposed to, oh, well, I wasn't worth with the right person or, oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, how did you come to that? that place well i'm pretty data driven and <laughs> after having from the time i was 18 to the time i got married at 31 probably had 10 fairly serious relationships and another three or four casual ones and at some point in every one of those relationships the monogamy got very challenging for me mm. i didn't always cheat Early on in my early 20s, I was like the master of the loophole. Like I'd, I'd pick a fight and we'd break up for we three days. Break. We'd break up for three days and I'd sleep with four people. And But oh. <clears throat> so I had enough data and I had to ask myself, well, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't Vicky or if it wasn't Kat or if it wasn't Nagar or if it was, you know, if, if it wasn't any of these people, none of them were the right people and they were all amazing people, then the issue was with me. So one of two things is the case. Either I am fundamentally broken and there is mm. no one in the world with whom I could be happy because I don't deserve it. Or this is just something that doesn't work for me. And in fact, I find fulfillment elsewhere. And so I began to look at other things and going back to even my high school relationship in almost every successful relationship I have where, and I'm, I'm defining that as relationships where it feels emotionally easy for me and I feel fulfilled and I'm showing up authentically and, and with honor. The thing that they all had in common was that there was a secondary emotional input. And so, for example, in my high school relationship, um, my high school sweetheart and I were really, we had a great relationship. And also, I was best friends with another girl who was her best mm. friend. And that girl and I we would like go to the mall and go shopping together. We had shows that we only watched together and it was functionally like another relationship. We just didn't sleep didn't together. Cross we didn't, we really. didn't cross that yeah. line until we all started sleeping together later on, but that's the thing. But every time I found the pieces in my life where I was happy in relationships, 
it was, I was in a devoted partnership with one person and there was another woman with whom I was deeply emotional connect, emotionally connected that people would always be like, are you guys dating? There's some, they would, we would be, the behavior was similar enough to a romantic partnership mm. that people were confused. And the most important thing was those were the relationships where I didn't cheat. Okay. So it was only in relationships where my partner thought it was inappropriate for me to have friends who were women that I had to hide this part of myself mm. and invariably I wound up stepping out. Yeah. Super interesting. So, okay. So with that and what I'm sure a lot of people who don't understand polyamory say, like, I'm sure you hear this a lot, like, oh, how is it? It's not possible to love more than, or love more than one person at one time or be in love with more than one person at one time. Or if you truly love your primary partner, then you wouldn't feel the need to do this. So you must not really love them. Right. And, and not to say that every, you know, additional partner that comes in is a love situation, mm -hmm. but what, what do you, what do you say to that kind of stuff? I say, okay, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't need to argue with people who yeah. are trying to, here's the thing. The way mm -hmm. I try to explain it to people is I, I use bisexuality or pansexuality, right? So if I were bisexual and I could be in a very fulfilling partnership with Amanda, but if I feel called to be with men, then there's, there's nothing that Amanda can provide right. that is going to fill that. And there's nothing that any woman can provide. It's just, it's simply different. Mm -hmm. As a person who is poly, like there, Amanda gives me everything I, you know, we have an amazing relationship. She's brilliant. If you guys don't know Amanda Bucci. She's wonderful. She's a fucking powerhouse. Amanda, firstly, she's the best human being I've ever met. She, she is, she's brilliant. She's funny. She is gorgeous. She is kind and compassionate and warm. She's ambitious. She's the first person I've ever been with where we have like a really equal uh, financial investment in the relationship. It's every, she's my life partner in every conceivable way. And she'll never be new again. I will mm. never be new for her. Which can sound like, even just saying that, <laughs> like people, like that can sound like such a like jab almost, but it's true. It's true. Right? We have a great sexual connection and it's amazing. And sometimes we want to bring someone else in yeah. and have sex with them together. Or sometimes there's a guy who is very, I don't know, California and he he's like into yoga and maybe he's, and whatever it is that Amanda sees in him that she doesn't get from me. He's from, very California. Yeah, <laughs> like most of the guys Amanda has, has seen during the course of our relationship, we, there, we have a lot of commonalities, but there's like stuff. I'm like, Oh, I get it. It's different. <clears throat> and you know, they're into astrology instead of fucking Isaac Asimov or whatever. <laughs> and there's something that she gets there. And and it doesn't, but these are justifications that I don't have to give to monogamous people because even if it's just the case that every now and again, Amanda wants to hop on a new dick, like I, I, I'm fine with it because that's, that's part of the relationship. I don't care if it, if there are boundaries that get crossed or there are places where uh, we need to have more discussion, safety for one another is always the primary mm -hmm. concern. And I'm obviously you know, not taking advantage of the other person, not using them in some way. When people say, if you really loved Amanda, then you wouldn't want to be with other people. No, if you really loved Amanda, you wouldn't want to be with other people. I really love Amanda <laughs> and I, I want to be with other people and I want to see her with it. I want her to be happy. I am not. It's not like a black and white situation as no. are like very few things are. Right, because what I can 
definitively say is I loved my ex-wife, loved her, still love her to this day. And I cheated on her relentlessly. It was like a fucking second job. It was disgusting. I have never done anything worse in my life than the amount of dis the symphony of lies mm -hmm. I had to conduct to just be existing in that relationship. And I loved her. Most people listening to this have done something to a person or around a person. Like if you've ever cheated, you probably still love the person. This is just like, I don't ever have to lie to Amanda. We just talk to one another. We are honest with one another. Sometimes somebody else comes up in, you know, in, in the periphery and it doesn't feel right for the other person and we don't engage. Mm. Everything is about safety and creating harmony in our primary relationship to the extent that's possible. Sometimes a new person is going to create like a little difficulty just, and, and that's fine too, because it doesn't always have to be easy mm -hmm. to be worth it. Yeah. Mm. Doesn't always have to be easy to be worth it. I like that. So yeah. And, and I can manage. So I've never been in a polyamorous relationship. I already mentioned, you mm -hmm. know, I cheated in my marriage and um, you and I have talked a lot about this, that since, so obviously everybody knows that I'm in the process of getting a divorce and, and I echo what you said, like, I think my ex is one of the best humans ever and love him to death still. And like, yeah, it wasn't the right fit. And I still like did all that terrible stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so since being single, the last better half of a year, um, have been in a space where I very much have not wanted an exclusive relationship and not really even a, a super serious relationship at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, so while I'm not like, you know, in polyamory per se, I'm getting to play with some of the flavors of that, I guess, mm -hmm. or, or, and, and at the very least, like having a lot of those very honest conversations and talking about boundaries and expectations and stuff like that, which from just hearing your experience, like there's so much discussion around boundaries, discussion around like processing in the moment. Like if you're like, okay, yeah, that's fine with me. And then it's like, Oh wait, no, actually I said it was fine. And then you went and did the thing and I, it doesn't feel good mm. to me. So like so much radical honesty conversations. I imagine jealousy comes up because people probably think like, oh, well then you guys just must not, not feel true. jealousy ever. Are you a growing entrepreneur looking for more visibility? Do you want to stand out as the authority and expert that you are? Do you want more leads, more dream clients coming to you asking about how they can work with you? Do you want to sell out your programs and have a stacked wait list? Are you finally ready to scale your business and create more results with less effort? Then you need the PR Accelerator, a hybrid program where we will teach you or somebody on your team how to do your own public relations, how to secure more podcast interviews, more media features, more speaking gigs, more collaborations, and ultimately more authoritative visibility so that you can scale your influence, your impact, and your income with ease. To learn more, visit laurensalon.com slash PR dash accelerator. That's laurensalon.com slash PR dash accelerator. So what's really interesting is people have, everybody has a strange relationship with jealousy. Some people think that if you don't feel jealousy, something's wrong. You don't care. Yeah. 
it's odd. It's the only place where we're like, well, if you don't suffer from crippling insecurity, then it yeah. means you don't love another person. <laughs> yeah. That's very strange. That is a very odd conclusion to come to. Secondly, and I think more pertinently, jealousy is an umbrella term for a constellation of emotional reactions mm -hmm. from possessiveness to insecurity to FOMO. And sometimes it's not, you know, it, there's absolute jealousy. Like I want to be doing that thing with that person. And other times it's more relative jealousy, like FOMO. If Amanda goes out on a date and I'm home bored, then I'm, and I'm experiencing some emotional distress. It's not really that she's out on the date. It's that I'm home bored. Yeah. You're like, right? but wait, come right. on, it's give like, me well, the attention and hang out with me. Right. Yeah. Because it's, a, we normally spend every night together. So if, but if I were on a date and she were on a date, I wouldn't feel that. Mm. So that's not real jealousy. It's just, it's, a, it's another emotion, but we put anything that comes up around our partner and another person as jealousy, but it's a constellation. And we really need to examine what each of these things are. And when you, when you figure out what it is, like if it's possessiveness, it's like, oh, well, I need Amanda to be mine. Okay. But she's a person, not a possession. So let's, let's dive into that. Sometimes the cure there is to decide what things are just for us, mm -hmm. right? So like certain nights of the week or certain names or, or just even reassurance that this person is really great and I'm getting a lot out of knowing them, but nothing is ever going to be a threat to the life we're building, right? Nothing is going to be a threat to the fact that we are going to get married, that we mm -hmm. want to have children together. That's everything. We are the nucleus of, of our relational lives. And there are other things orbiting that. And that's okay. Sometimes you just need a little reassurance. Other times you have insecurities. Sometimes it, it can, you know, I don't know, like whatever insecurities people have, are, is she prettier than me? Is his dick bigger than mine? Is, is he a better dancer than me? Do you, is that what you want? Do you want somebody who's going to go to yoga with you three times a week mm -hmm. instead of somebody who is going to force you to read, you know, the New York times. So you're educated about what's going on in the world. Yeah. Ultimately you you're putting trust in another person to be honest with you about where they are. Yeah. And, and there's just a lot more things about which you need to be honest. Right. Right. And it's, it's so, yeah, it, just the level of transparent communication is that I found in conversations with people who do have polyamorous relationships or who are like monogamish it's next level, their mm -hmm. communication with their partner most of the time and their ability to process together and to like, if something, you know, something comes up dealing with it in the moment and, and the strength of those relationships sometimes is like way stronger than I see in like certain monogamous relationships. In a non-monogamous setup, you're almost by, by dint of the fact that there is so much communication, you are, you're co-creating a, a bespoke relationship and figuring out what works and what doesn't. Whereas in monogamy, because monogamy is sort of compulsory in our society, everybody goes in and you just assume all of these jobs and these roles. And we might have different feelings ab mm -hmm. about certain things. And so you're playing a part with a pre-established script and therefore there's less need for discussion 
but that part might not work for you. Yeah, but then there's also so much opportunity for miscommunication. Precisely correct. And assumptions, you know, like, oh, well, we're working from the same definition. Not usually. (laughs) A very simple thing is like, where do you stand on your partner texting with people of- Like took it right out of my brain. Like Like, it just- Oh, like harmless flirting. No big deal, right? But some people might be like, no, no, no. Like don't even get flirty. Don't get flirty or even don't go to lunch with another person, yeah. which could, it just be, uh, you know, that could be business. Right. It could just be networking, but because the other person is of a different gender or because there is you know, potential for sexual chemistry, that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. And so definitions of propriety of what exists within the boundaries, those need to be very explicit because when we, when we are looking at only implicit things, then we're not really looking at anything because everybody has wildly different definitions, but we're assuming the other person has yeah. our definition. The person who would say, if you do this, you don't really love your, your wife, your partner, whatever. That person has a very different definition of actions that need to be in place to prove that love exists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than I do. And what's interesting to me too, is so many, I, th- I think so many people who aren't familiar with or don't really un- understand polyamory would look at it and be like, oh, well, then you're just like opening up the door for your partner to fall for somebody else and like leave you and and stuff like that, or, or develop a better connection and then not want to be with you anymore. And it's like, you guys, like that can happen at any time in any kind of relationship. All the time in ostensibly monogamous relationships. Yeah. This happens all the time. Office romances, bud, people meet, they start flirting. And because there's no space to process that, you process it with that person and it actually increases the potential for intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, yes, I suppose that creating a container in which both people are, or multiple people are allowed to connect with other people does theoretically increase the likelihood of that connection happening. Uh, but I don't think that's bad, right? If Amanda were to meet someone and have a stronger connection and find someone where there is, you know, a better suiting for the relationship. If I am in favor of her highest good, don't I want that for her? Mm, yep. I don't want to be in another ill-fitting marriage. I don't want to be in another mediocre relationship. Our relationship is beautiful because of this exploration or in part because of it. Obviously we just, love each other. We just love the shit out of each other. She's my best friend. And as her best friend, if she had a real strong connection with someone, I would struggle with that. I don't want to say I wouldn't, I won't, don't want to say I wouldn't feel jealous or insecure, but I trust her to be honest with me as it's developing. And for us to know where we are as individuals relative to one another and where the relationship is. And that connection, very intense connections come and go. It it could be, you know, she dates somebody for a year and then that ends, or it could be a longstanding thing. And we would figure out whether or not we could make room for it. And I would decide to the degree that like I was, you know, I would set my boundaries and then Amanda would decide if she's okay operating within those. Mm -hmm. It's it's constant conversation. It's negotiation. It's not, it's not all everything goes. She, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if in the end, a new relationship somehow led to or, or catalyzed the ending of the existing relationship, 
that can happen in monogamous relationships too. It often does. It happened in my marriage and it isn't inherently bad. Mm. Stability is a spectrum. Things can be yes. stable for two years and then end. And we have a fairly strange definition of success for a relationship. It's till death do us part. Yeah. The only metric for whether or not your relationship worked is if you die while in it. <laughs> Gosh. That, yeah, but that's true. Right. So instead, a successful relationship could be one that goes on for a few years from which both people learn and it creates tremendous opportunity for growth and joy and pleasure and challenge. And then it ends for whatever reason, relationships end. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was something in with my ex and I deciding to end our marriage and transition that it's so funny because it, and it ultimately ended up being a very mutual thing and the best thing for both of us. Um, and and yeah, there's part of me like saw it as a failure. And I think that's why we like kept at it for so long and didn't come to this conclusion sooner. Cause I was like, no, there's no other option, you know, like, and, and I remember, I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow when she and Chris Martin split up and like the term conscious uncoupling came out and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so ridiculous. It's just, it's called it a divorce, you know? And I'm like, no, but that's, and, and having gone through what I would call a conscious uncoupling. I'm like, no, it's, it's such a different feeling than like just a breakup or a divorce. Like it was a very, in many ways, a beautiful and like tragic and painful as well, but a very beautiful process too. And yeah, looking at it that like success doesn't mean staying together forever, no matter what. Right. Like, yeah. So, um, yeah. Thing is not beautiful only because it lasts. Mm. there is beauty and tragedy in things ending but without that without the possibility of that then nothing has any meaning nothing has any weight yeah oh yeah deep all right so talking about poly a bit i think we we touched touched on quite a bit of that (laughs) um so another thing with that which and this isn't always so poly and kink aren't necessarily always like hand in hand like oh if you're into poly you're also kinky that's correct so i would i would say i don't know if you would agree with this like i feel like poly people tend to be a little bit more on the kinkier side or open to exploring more accurate no my experience in the non-monogamous community is or has been that um, most of the people with whom I've connected have been at least a little kinky. Um, let's define that for Yeah, everybody. I was actually, you took it right out of my brain. <clears throat> so kink or BDSM stands for bondage, domination, sadomasochism. Bondage is being tied up. Um, I think we would also probably include impact play in there. So spanking, flogging, things of that nature. Domination is power exchange. One person being the dom, one person being the sub. You can have a whole conversation about that. Sadomasochism, this is really where you put impact. So sadism is getting pleasure from inflicting pain. Masochism is getting pleasure from having pain inflicted on you. Um, There's no agreed upon definition for where vanilla, which is anything that isn't kinky, and and ends and, and kink begins because there are some pretty extreme sex acts 
that don't require bondage, domination, or power mm-hmm. change of any kind, or um, hitting or, or being hit. But because of their extreme nature, some people might consider them kinky. Just, you know. Like what? I would say the easiest one to talk about, because everybody has a butt, is anal, right? So, so <laughs> everyone has everyone's a butt. got a butt. It's, most, it's, it's, it's the most egalitarian, right? Anal sex is is pretty much dear at this point. It's it's in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Most people have have had some experimentation with it. You, it's very challenging, I would imagine, to find porn where it is in the future. Whereas instead of like instead of the exception, it's now the rule. And there are if if we just look at the way that the acceptance of that has changed within the conversation, it's no longer shameful. We talk about there's, there's entire Instagram accounts dedicated to butt plugs and ass play and analingus and all of the, all aspects of, of uh, pleasure coming from that area of your body. For some people, the idea of anal sex seems kinky, right? It's like, because it's outside the norm of vanilla sex. My argument there, and this is a very common argument, is then what we're doing is defining sex or even vanilla sex with a standard of sex by what applies strictly to heteronormative intercourse. Mm. So penis and vagina is normal and everything else outside of that is kinky. Is that abnormal? Well, then that is primarily the way that many men have sex with one another. And so I, I would say for my own just linguistic limitations, I, I tend to refer to kink specifically as anything that exists with power exchange and um, bondage and, and hitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, it's just like, okay, well, staying in someone's mouth kinky is, or is, if anal's not kinky, is going ass to mouth kinky? It, 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 the conversation yeah. becomes very challenging. So for the purposes of everybody listening, when we talk about kink for the rest of this conversation, <laughs> we're mostly going to be talking about structured kink, so BDSM, power exchange, um, doms and subs, and then the things that happen within that world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So much. I, f- I feel like I already forgot like three questions. <laughs> totally right. And I, I wrote most of them down. So one of the things that I think a lot of people assume, because I assumed this as well. So for, for if you're like new here, um, I enjoy kinky sex and stuff like that. Um, and I have past sexual trauma. And so I used to view anyone else who was into kinky sex and stuff like that. I would assume, oh, well, they must have either trauma in their background as, I mean, shit, most of us do, (laughs) but like they must have some sort of sexual trauma too, because like we become like freaks who are like awesome in bed through like having gone through a lot of shit like that. And, and that I, I realized too, like, oh no, I'm applying and even if, whether you've worked through it or not, I'm like, no, I'm applying my assumptions and my experience to other people. And that may not be accurate at all. It's entirely the case that many people who are kinky, many kinksters have no sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people from the outside have, or even from the inside, have projections of this kind and think or, or, or suggest that kinks develop solely from trauma 
then what we're really doing is pathologizing kink. Mm. And we're also pathologizing sex because if you're if you're not, if you don't have trauma and you're kinky, then what? Yeah, Maybe there's trauma, trauma in your background. Yeah. Further, there are many people, many, many people who have sexual trauma who do not identify as cancers. Right. They it has, you know, so how trauma affects us does not have a blanket effect or is, is how trauma affects one person will not necessarily be how it affects another person. I, myself, there are aspects of my kink expression that feel pretty linearly connected to my sexual trauma. And there are also aspects of it which feel very connected to my family trauma. Mm. For example, I identify as a daddy, mm-hmm. right? And this is not, I, it's not only that I like women to call me that during sex, but it's a, it's a caretaker role. Yeah. Which means that um, rather than a, a master who is putting, I, I, I'm not into, I'm, I don't, I'm not into causing pain unless people like it, but it's, it's a very, it's gentle and firm. And I find that the women who gravitate towards me, uh, who the submissive women who gravitate towards me want the structure that mm-hmm. I provide in the masculine container of, of that. And also what I have noticed is that it's very healing for me, not because of my sexual trauma, but simply because I get to, to behave in this way. I'm this strong male figure that provides authority and structure and safety and protection, which are the exact things I did not have from my own father because he was not present after I was nine. And the more I do this in my kink life with, with Amanda and with other subs that I've had over the years, it's really instilling me with this confidence that I can do that. That, so by being daddy, I show myself that I can also be dad Mm. and having grown up as a, as a boy with no positive real male role model for a very long time. I, the idea of having children was anathema. I w- it was terrifying to me, but now because of the way that I've learned about myself, the lessons and the self-reflection through being daddy in kink, I feel very confident that I could be a great father. And that, that kind of healing is, it exists in kink. It's not specific to everybody, but the, the aspects of kink that are most present for me did not come from sexual trauma. It just came from, you know, how many of us didn't have a dad? Yeah. It's not a, it's not a rare problem. I'm not special in that regard. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And, and I agree. And it's funny because the more that I've like healed my past sexual trauma past other kinds of traumas and just gotten more aligned and in tune with myself. Like the more like I'm letting that freak flag fly. So it's like had the, yeah. So it's been a really neat experience and absolutely the self-awareness that comes with it too, of saying like, Oh, is this coming from a place of wounding or like where, what, or this, is this just new and exciting and, and something I'm enjoying? So think, yeah, so much opportunity for growth and understanding yourself in a deeper way, which is so cool. Um, let's talk more about daddy and sure. <laughs> what that means. So, okay. So a few things like, so 
I'm sure a lot of people listening. So you spoke into like your dad stuff a mm. little bit and how that, you know, is part of that picture in a certain way. What about people who are like, oh, well, those subs then like they must have daddy issues or something. In psychology, we have an acknowledgement that every one of us experiences the father wound mm -hmm. to some degree. And it isn't necessarily from our own father. Some people have great mm -hmm. fathers, but their relationship with authority mm -hmm. is skewed. So every, everybody has the role that fathers fill for us is one of protection and provision and safety and authority and structure. And, you know, that's a little gendered, certainly, but these are the psychological things that we, we get. And certainly mothers can provide these as well. And when we do not have that, or even if we do, certain holes can develop and we seek to fill those. Women who are interested in having a daddy don't always have daddy issues. They don't always have a negative relationship with their father mm. um there's but who among us wouldn't want somebody to put their pleasure first to take care of us to make sure that we're provided for and to to treat us really well and also you know make sure that we do what we're supposed to do which is <laughs> in the in the context of of sex the way that that plays out is i am directing a scene right? I am in the director's chair, mm -hmm. but I know I collect all the information up front in the consultation. So I know what the sub wants to get out of it. And then I create a scene and, and there are, you know, there's things that I tell her to do because I know mm -hmm. that she wants to do them. And it, it's a really beautiful opportunity for artistic expression, for playful expression. I think that to marginalize or, or even just to just to suggest that every every person who wants a sub or who, who wants a daddy uh, has daddy issues, has a poor relationship with her father. I don't think that's true. Yeah. It certainly hasn't been my experience. Amanda has a great relationship with her father. And yet I'm daddy. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Amanda would have sought that out without me. That's the role that I, you know, that's how I, I, I just show up sexually. But um, it is one where it, it's a place where she finds great safety and great pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, cause I think there's so many misconceptions about it. So it's cool to, to shed light on that. Um, and so something actually I would love for you to, to speak into a little bit with like the do, uh, Dom sub dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, why does 50 shades of gray get it completely wrong or how, how? Does it, oh, cause I think that was like, that's yeah. probably one of the biggest mainstream um, opportunities, I guess, to see like a, yeah. a dom sub relationship. And it's like so ridiculous. <laughs> the thing to understand about Fifty Shades of Grey is that it started as fan fiction. For Twilight, right? For Twilight. So it was written, E.L. James wrote under the internet handle Snow Queen Ice Dragon. Oh. And she wrote these stories starring Edward and Bella. And then kind of overlaid kink on top of it and then had to change all that obviously when mm -hmm. they were going to turn it into a book and copywriting but just looking at that if you look at the relationship between Edward and Bella in the books it was pretty abusive yeah um 
you know, he. Not super consensual. Yeah. Not super consensual, but also the way that he gaslights her and sort of becomes the entirety of her world. And you have to keep this secret for me. And so it's going to isolate her from all of her friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, So using that as the template for the relationship, then when you have the relationship between Christian Grey and um, Anna, Anastasia, Anastasia, that's already built in. Christian is incredibly wealthy, which we are taught is very desirable in a man, but controls her with his money a little bit, you know, buys her things that she doesn't want. And in the books, it's, it's, there's a lot of responsibility that he places on that. Like you, you know, almost like you owe me. Yeah. She is also, I believe a virgin. And so it denies her independent exploration by mm-hmm. having to conform entirely to his template. It also shows a really like a very extreme version of it. So I have never had a contract with anyone that they've had to sign. Um, most Kingsters don't, unless, you know, unless somebody wants to, it's, it's a fun way to play. Obviously these are not legally binding contracts that you, know, you signed <laughs> it. So now I get to fist your ass whenever <laughs> I want. Like that's crazy. So it really, it just really shows a lot of manipulation and, um, and it also, his template is weird because he in the, in the books is presented as a dominant. And then it turns out that he learned kink from a a dom. So he was a sub. So maybe he's a switch, but then it turns out he's actually just a sadist who likes to abuse women who look like his mother. Um, which is, you know, so, so dominance is a, a place that he plays so he can fulfill his sadistic urges. Then it's really not typically the way it is. Um, most, it, it's just, it's, it's an inaccurate picture. Most of the time, uh, there in any, in any relationship, somebody could be abusive or misleading, but the drama behind their whole thing is like, I don't know. Why wouldn't you just break up with him and find someone else? You know, he's like, God, he's like, there's people. It's just, it's a, it's a terrible book. And kink is just like kind of the, the sheen on it. But even if you removed that, it would still be an abjectly, objectively terrible book. Mm -hmm. And there's no saving that. Yeah. I, I watched, like, I watched one of the movies a month ago for the first time and just was like, okay, what is, what is this silly movie about? And I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. And then they're, and they're not good movies, which is like even worse. (laughs) And the sex isn't good. And the the big thing that I would say 50 shades gets wrong is that Anna throughout the entirety of it, is she's very much doing everything for Christian. He Mm -hmm. needs this and she wants to be with him and therefore she'll do it. Mm -hmm. And that is almost never how it works in kink. Most of the, and actually the the way that kink tends to manifest in the unhealthy ways is there's two kinksters who are looking for this and then they find each other 
And then the relationship becomes about that. And so they might not be a good pair relationally, but their kink templates match up. And so then they mm. overlook all of the stuff, the reasons mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be together. And they're just like, well, where am I going to find this with someone yeah. else? And so they, you know, well, that's the danger. Yeah. And if and it's everyone not- who's been like, and I, 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 this isn't the right term, but like sexually addicted to a partner. If you've ever had someone where you're just like, it's the best sex I've ever had. And you keep going back over and over. Kink is like that, only there's a structure to it. And therefore yeah. it's more intense. It's also part of your identification. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is find relationships that are good relationships with kinky people. Yes. And that's, that's a little harder. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause now I'm like, Oh, well now that this is like a thing on my list, <laughs> like yeah. the kinky stuff, like, gosh, I'm just making it even harder. <laughs> yeah. It is for hard. myself out here in the, in the wild. One of the things I have been struggling with of late, as I have shared more and more about being a kinkster, and, and this, this is a space I've been in since I was 25. Mm. So it's now 13 years and it's a lot of experience. But now that I'm sharing about it openly on my platform and obviously I have a lot of eyes on me, plus I have Amanda's audience looking at me and her mom. <laughs> but I... I, I seem to, I think I present outwardly as an avatar for a really great dom. And the, I would you know, agree. I'm, I'm very yeah. open to I have open communication. I'm, I'm really dedicated to consent. The way that I answer questions is very considered. And what I notice, and this is, this is a challenge for me because my, my heart breaks for people is I have so many subs sliding into my DMs, not necessarily trying to flirt or, inculcate a dynamic, but sharing stories with me about how they have Mm. been uh, looking for a dom forever and they just can't find one or how these people who are submissives and they're married and their husband won't play with this in this space at all. And there are so many people who never got to bring this out into conversation and it's an area of great fulfillment and great exploration. And now they they're expressing what you just expressed that if I'm going to find a great partner now, in addition to wanting them to be successful and handsome and kind and compassionate <laughs> and, uh, and tall or what, you know, yeah. and hands all of the, and also they not right. just kinky <laughs> also ideally experienced with kink. Yeah. So that narrows the field yes. a lot. Yes. And, it is a challenge, certainly. Yes. Right? Um, yes. Do you hear me? I'm like, yes. Okay. yes. So if you know anyone like that, guys, uh, if you yourself are oh a successful, no, like, no. well, like, like 35 <laughs> to 45, salt and pepper hair. Um, oh my gosh. Anyhow. <laughs> you know um, any- shit. What were my other questions going to be? Oh gosh. Um, oh, I forget now. I got all, I got all flustered and thrown off. Um, yeah, but definitely like it's for myself in exploring this, this new direction, which I will say like you were a big part of my continued exploration down that path. Like I, I feel like I typically in most of my relationships have historically been like more of the freak, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not like 
this is the seed was in there. Right. Um, but through just like your, what you share and you being so open about what you talk about and conversations we've had, like it's allowed me to explore this stuff a lot more and, and in doing so learn so much more about mm. myself and what I'm looking for and what kind of dynamics feel good. And like, what doesn't feel good, like all of that. Um, so thank you. Thank for you one. for, thank you. That's very kind. I'm, I, it's very fulfilling and heartening to know that this stuff I share is, is having an effect yeah. and, and positive, especially to someone so close to me. That's really nice. It's, yeah, you know, the, the question I'm, I, I am constantly asked often by Amanda's mother is why I share so much. But the answer is that the amount that I share is directly proportional to the number of people who say Asking. things like this. Yeah. And that, you know, I just had a woman uh, just three days ago DM me to say that I saved her marriage mm. and that she and her husband, they got a sex swing and they're exploring oh all of these things that have been living inside them, probably both. Yeah. And they just never brought it out. And the thing that I think is a vehicle for fulfillment, but it is not the only vehicle for fulfillment, mm -hmm. but driving that vehicle and any vehicle for fulfillment is communication mm -hmm. and willingness to be vulnerable and put something out there and say, I really, uh, I'm into this, please. Yeah. And, and oh, hoping that the other person at the very least accepts you, even yeah. if they're not, you know, if it's not their vibe. Yeah. Right. And, but that's the thing that's, it's always comes back to that. You have to be willing to be authentic or you push a part of yourself down and it expresses in some other way. Mm -hmm. So, okay. We've been talking for a while and I could keep going for probably another hour. Uh, that's what she said. Hey. Um, and so I'm going to like wrap it up with like three more questions, I think. So one of them, do you, because this is how you are inclined and what you enjoy, do you, is it hard for you to have vanilla sex or it's just less like I, your preference? Cause I know some people, like I've had partners who like very into kink and um, you know, daddy, that sort of thing. I hope my own father is not listening to this dear Lord. Um, and who have been like, oh yeah, once I get more connected to somebody and I feel like I trust them more then I can have sex more as me, you know, less as just daddy. Sure. I could have vanilla sex with Amanda some, but even, if, even when our sex is more vanilla, which is to say there, there isn't, you know, even on the occasions where there's no spanking or flogging or she doesn't put her collar on, the titles are still there. Mm. So even in, in the most basic, there, um, there is a kink element. There's mm -hmm. like a, like a power exchange. And I am sometimes asked, could I have vanilla sex with a new person? I don't understand why I would want to, Yeah, because I, I, couldn't if i met with a new person and we were going to have sex i would still do a consultation and you know, what are you into i wouldn't just go to have sex with them and take my pants off and say you have to call me sir because <laughs> daddy is an earned title and yeah I, I think that if i if i happen to connect with someone in the wild let's say and we had a strong connection and it seemed like we wanted a sexual interaction. And in the consultation, it turned out that they were not remotely interested in kink. Could I have vanilla sex with them? Probably. It, 
it wouldn't be that fulfilling for either yeah. one of us. And so I would probably just move it towards friendship. Yeah. And that's why like, it's important to know what you, what turns you on, right? Like what, what your arousal template is like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So, cause speaking of, you were talking about sharing and you do talk about this stuff a lot. So you guys like on John's Instagram, absolutely go check it out. He shares a lot about this stuff. Super, super just eye-opening, educational, all of that. Um, how has that, cause I know you've talked about this a bit on social media as well. How has sharing about this stuff like affected business, like your writing business and stuff like that? It's somehow it's crushing. It's what happens. I think this is what might be happening. I think people who are maybe interested in hiring us as copywriters, they, they watch for a while and I'm usually contacted by people who say like, if you can talk about this, if you can talk about kink in such an articulate way, mm. and if you've changed my mind about it, if you then what can you do for my business? Your, your way with words is why we're hiring you. Mm-hmm. And it has not, it's impossible to say who isn't reaching out to me for coaching because right. I, you have no idea, but I have not lost any clients. I have, my business is, is bigger now than it was at the beginning of 2020. And yeah, and also it's opened up a new, if, if I want it, if there are people who are more interested in doing, you know, relationship or kink coaching, I, mm-hmm. I have been doing some of it, but it's, um, that's an area where I just want to help people and, you know, I can't charge them the same rate I would mm-hmm. for business coaching or copy coaching. So at some point when I compute my hourly, I'm like, it's, it's probably actually not <laughs> worth my time, but I do like to help. And one of the, the greatest things about being in business for yourself and having multiple revenue streams is when I, when things are going really well in so many other aspects of business, I can get on a kink coaching call for like a thousand bucks instead of 3000 for business coaching. And it's fine. And, and it allows me to, to work with people mm-hmm. in, that, in that way. Yeah. I love it. And that's, I mean, something I say all the time, the more you, you are out in the world, like. I, I believe the more successful you'll be and, and the, and more importantly, like the more fulfilled you're going to be and like happy, you know? So that's such an example of that, especially sharing something that's can carry a lot of shame and misconceptions and stuff around it. I want to acknowledge my privilege and Mm. state that by virtue of the previous 13 years of accomplishments, I can come out yes. talking about kink because I've already got the New York Times bestseller yes. and I've run multiple seven-figure businesses and my name gets kicked around with Tim Ferriss and Tucker Max and Ryan Holiday and Marie Forleo. I have a, a certain type of advantage yes. that not everyone yes. does. And I just want, I always want to acknowledge my privilege. I just want to be very clear that um, a lot of the things that I do that somehow amplify business might not work as a business model. Mm. And I am very aware of that. And also as a, someone who presents outwardly as a straight white male who is educated and articulate, the information is received in a different way. Whereas if I were a woman of color Mm. that, you know, it would not, I wouldn't be like a kink educator. I'd just be someone talking about this in a way that that Mm. other people might feel more inclined to devalue. And I, I feel very, very grateful that I am aware enough of that to try to use my privilege in a very positive way because I do see other kink educators who are people of color 
they, they don't seem to, obviously I'm coming from the, an entrepreneurial world where I have this big audience, but you know, they don't always catch traction in, in the same way. And yeah. their, their accounts are probably more likely to be banned. So I want to acknowledge my privilege that it's, yeah, absolutely. yes, it's great for me and self-expression and also, and uh, I do recommend that people take it slow. Yeah. Be, yeah. Think to, to think about it, of course. Um, for people who are listening, who mm. are curious about poly or mm. kink and who maybe haven't like dipped their toes into that, but are curious, like what sort of advice would you give people who are interested in exploring? Like, how do you get started becoming kinky? How do you get, I get this all (laughs) the time. Firstly, educate yourself. I think that you should follow some kink accounts. Mine is a great account to start with at John Romanello. Lena Dune from Ask a Sub. Yes. Lena has incredible content. Yes. She puts yes. up very funny memes, but also her Q and A's are great. Her Patreon is fantastic. Take the BDSM quiz. It's bdsmtest.org and answer honestly. And you will see that you have some proclivities that maybe we're not aware of. And you'll, at the end of the test, you'll maybe get some terms that you don't know. Like, oh, I, what is a rope bunny? <laughs> A rope bunny. That was one of my recent yeah, questions. Like a rope bunny is someone who likes to be tied up and a rigger. It's like, oh yeah, duh. Um, so all of these things. So, and then begin your exploration safely. If you are feeling like you are a submissive, I would recommend, particularly if you're a woman, I would recommend going slowly and really doing your diligence to suss out a good dom. Again, we should acknowledge our privilege. We're in LA, I'm I'm from New York. Higher concentrations of humans mean higher concentrations of kinky people. Whereas if you are in Iowa, I imagine that if you are a sub in suburban Iowa, it can be really challenging and, and there is a greater thirst. And so you, you know, if you match with a dom on a, on a kinky dating app, like field or FetLife, you might be willing to overlook mm. some of the red flags simply because the economics of the situation are yeah. such that- Well, it's my only option. Right, please don't do that. Yeah. Of all things, please absolutely do not do that. You can actually find great people, great digital doms. You know, I, again, I mentioned a woman in the UK. Um, I, you know, I've she's been my sub for like two years and we've not met in person. She's an amazing human being. We're also very, we're, we're great friends. And, but all of our play is completely digital. And at some point that will change, but you can find great fulfillment in that. I, as a Dom, find great fulfillment playing in this role for her. I know she gets a lot out of it. And so if you're a sub and you can't find someone in your area, be extra solicitous and maybe look to someone who is um, not as close to you. If you are a Dom, particularly if you are a man, please, please don't fuck it up. You are... Submission could never be taken. It can only be granted. Hmm. So when a sub is giving you her submission, this is, this is something to be treasured mm-hmm. and treated with great respect. And on top of that, because I'm talking to men here, we're stacking patriarchy and misogyny and privilege. And so you really need to be extra careful. Ask all of the questions mm-hmm. in your consultation 
do your do your work to find out about trauma. Make sure that they feel not not just that you establish your safe words, but that they feel empowered to use them. Mm. And the first several times you play with someone, check in and make sure that things are going okay. Have your aftercare, have your breakdowns. As far as learning the mechanics of it, there are some good books. If you go to johnromanello.com slash polybooks, there are, it's, it's a reading list for both uh, poly and kink books. Learning how to spank someone is actually not that challenging. <laughs> learning how to do, um, you know, like double fisted flogging, that's a little harder, but um, it's cool. <laughs> my it's face, cool. my it's face cool. right it's now is like, quarantining. So it's what like, is it's like double fisted flogging? So you have a small flogger in each hand or medium flogger in each hand and you do figure like eight patterns. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's called Florentining. It's figure eight okay. patterns and it's very cool. It looks cool. You do, I do it at parties and uh, king parties. Sex parties. parties. Not, like, not just like my oh, birthday Oh, that was party. one of my questions. Yes. We'll get into that. Yeah, we'll have to have an episode time. too. Yeah. So we'll get to talk about sex parties <laughs> next time. So all of the mechanical stuff, um, work into it slowly. Don't rush into it. But the, the hardest part, the most challenging and, and the most meaningful and enjoyable thing about kink is the safety and communication mm -hmm. that you get to both experience and provide and the communication is that's the yeah. drug yeah that's the drug because it's it's my understanding of it and and what i've read seen heard a lot is like you get to play out what like these fantasy situations or or even dynamics that might feel risky or unsafe yeah. in a lot of ways but in such a safe container and i love how you said that you know a sub that's that's earned or that is it's granted you know mm -hmm. not assumed and like even from my own perspective like i like to play sub more i mean i like to switch but like to play sub more and it is a like i don't feel sub with everybody and yeah, that's a, how i know it's, it. yeah and so when i feel naturally like i can settle into that that's like a such a sign for me to be like oh yes keep going in this direction. Cause I know I can like do all the, all the things, but if I feel naturally like mm. letting go and in my divine feminine and receiving in that way, like, yeah, that's like super exciting for me. So it is absolutely. Cause for all y'all know me over here, like tend to be a very alpha woman, you know? And so for somebody to make me feel safe and secure in letting that go and letting that control go and everything. That's a big, that's a big fucking deal for me. So, it is. Yeah. And, it, and that's a beautiful gift to receive because women, oh, I don't want to speak for all women, but I know many women who are entrepreneurs bringing so much structure to your life and so much force to it all the time. When I meet subs who are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs like you who also identify subs, there's a, a freedom and a relaxation that you get to take, take a vacation from that part of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. Yeah. It's a really cool thing as a Dom to be able to provide. Yeah. And, and same thing with what you said with the sub, like with the Dom, like that is very much an earned thing with me. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a really cool area to, to play with and explore, I think, but okay. We, we have to wrap up. I'm just going to do, I'm going to do one thing. Real <laughs> okay. quick. I am aware how conversations like this in listening get perceived. So I just want to clarify for everybody. Oh gosh. We have not played together. We, yeah, we, I, we, it's, I've it's, never we, seen this man naked. It's, you're missing or, out. So I just wanted to say that because every time I do an interview like this with a woman, 
somebody gets so, DMs. Oh, it's she like, must be the sub. do you guys play together? So we are friends. <laughs> You're a wonderful, beautiful person. And I just want to clarify that for all the either curious people or the fuck boys out there who just assume that because I talked to a woman about sex <laughs> we're, that, that we're having sex. We aren't fucking. But I just, I just wanted to say that because I, it's really important that yes. there's as much clarity yeah, as possible. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you yeah. can have friends of the opposite sex and talk about sex and it be just that, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so last thing that we ask everybody because this is all about like this show, all about owning your truth, like using your voice and standing out as the most authentic, vibrant version of yourself. So what's one piece of advice or like a quote or mm. something? Cause I'm sure you've got some, some mm. cool stories or little anecdotes in there or action item, um, question to ask, ask yourself for those who are looking to really just stand out so authentically as themselves a piece of advice or a quote or an action item Nugget. To, yeah. to help people stand out more as themselves. Um, it can't be do drugs, right? Like that's, I mean, it's just sure. like, it, I mean, I think that to discover <laughs> yourself, yeah, psychedelics are, are great. Um, let me think something I would say to everyone. Well, don't rush into standing out. So mm. Nietzsche said, before one can fly, one must first learn to stand and walk and run. One cannot fly into flying. And I think that if you have a presence online and you hear interviews like this, where there is a lot revealed and you're, that's coming into your head in the frame of success or authenticity or all these things happen outside your comfort zone, there can be a, a fuzzing of the signal. So success happens outside your comfort zone, but it actually happens like one to six inches outside your comfort zone. So if you imagine your comfort zone as a circle, you expand that circle slowly by inches. What you don't do is rush 30 yards out because that's, <laughs> that's trauma. So whenever you're thinking about the things to share and how to do that, Share the things that feel like an edge, but don't feel mm -hmm. the things that feel like a cliff. So you do this slowly because everything that's ever been done well has happened iteratively. And so just a little bit of advancement, because when you do that, when you just step a few inches outside your comfort zone, you share one thing that seems scary, you get time to, have to adjust to that being out there. I, I could not have, I can't imagine a world where in 2012, I just like, went at the height of like, I was just gotten a book deal. And I was like, hey, everybody, like, by the way, I have had two suicide attempts and I have kinky sex. And it just would have been crazy. You know, these things happen slowly by degrees. Yes. So figure out the, the next thing on the list that feels scary, share that, and then stick around for like three to five weeks and then go a little bit more. And then eventually you will be able to reveal all of yourself. Yes. Oh, I like that. That's, that's great. And now, where can everybody find you and connect with you? I am, as mentioned, on Instagram. John Romanello is, uh, it's very clever. It's my name. So you could just look for that. And beyond that, um, if you're interested in copywriting, I have courses for that and course, courses for writing. But other than that, just, you know, join the mailing list and I'll send out some stuff sometimes. Some, you know, we talk about King, talk about my dog, talk about my relationship, and we talk about business. But mostly Instagram is the place to be. Amazing. I love it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. This was such a fucking awesome conversation. Ah, so good. Thank you so much for having me.
And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode and if you know of somebody else who is bold, successful, and unapologetically owning their unique magic while they make a big impact in the world, please send them my way. And it would also mean the world to me if you help me get this message out to as many listeners as possible. So if you liked what you heard, I'd be so grateful if you would please take 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share this episode with your friends. Be sure to tag me so that I can say thank you. And until the next episode, keep showing up, keep using your voice, and keep being you. Because the world needs more of your magic. Yeah.